Good morning. So, uh, in the Bible, God is, God is talked about as our Father. And for some, that's difficult. For some, uh, it's difficult because of their earthly relationship with their father. For me, uh, I, had, I had four fathers. I've had four fathers. I had a, a natural father who, when I was four, left. And so, I guess when I'm four, I, I think of fathers as someone who leaves. And then after that, I had a father for about a year who didn't treat me or my mother very well in ways I won't go into. So I kind of looked at fathers as those who don't treat you very well. And then when I was seven, I got a father who's a good guy. He's a good guy, pretty much cared for me. But I really wasn't sure about him. Was he going to leave like the other two? Was I going to keep this father? And when I was about 13, I got a new father. He was actually the same father as the third, but he was changed. He was changed by God into a, a man that, that loved God and, and loved me in a new and a, a different way. And so that father that I stopped worrying, is he going to leave or not? That's the kind of father that God is. And today we're going we're gonna to see the kind of father God is. And we're going to see and receive, uh, I hope, my prayer for us this morning is that we'll get that kind of assurance that I didn't have in my father until I got that fourth father. Assurance of an eternal relationship. Uh, what we're calling, what, what we're calling, what we'll look at, uh, assurance of our salvation. And that salvation really isn't just I'm saved, and we'll see that as we talk through it. It's, it's I'm assured relationship with God throughout all eternity. And so I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. In the first 11 verses, Paul writes about our benefits of justification. He tells us of, of, of really these glorious things that happen to those who by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, are counted righteous. We're not made righteous, but the, the righteousness of Christ is given to us, is imputed, the word is, counted, credited to us. And he has two main purposes. Paul has two main purposes for, for declaring these benefits that we've received. First is to give us hope. To give us hope. Paul is assuring believers that the God who's given us these present benefits will also give us future benefits, the future benefits he's promised. Specifically, the benefit we'll talk about today. Specifically, the benefit of salvation. That's uh, what we'll see in Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. So first, Paul wants us to have hope, uh, to have assurance in the promise of God. And second, he wants this hope to lead to something. It's not just hope for hope's sake. This hope is to lead us to do something in this life. And that something is to rejoice in God. To glorify God, to say. It's the, it's the first sign over there and over there. It's what uh, the mission of our church is about. At Bridges, we glorify God. We want to be people who glorify God. And so that's Paul's purpose. So let's begin with just a quick, quick review of the benefits we've seen so far in Romans 1, I mean, sorry, Romans 5, 1 through 8. 
I just want to remind us of what we've received, and this will be brief, when we've been justified by faith. First, we have peace with God. Through the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ, we now have peace with God. Jesus reconciles us into relationship with God. And then, once we're in relationship, we, we stand in God's grace. We continue to live in God's unmerited, unsolicited, undeserved, unearned favor. And therefore, we rejoice in God's glory. We rejoice uh, now that one day, His glory will be fully revealed to the world and fully revealed in our lives. And so we can forth rejoice in our sufferings. Suffering is different for the justified than it is for the unjustified, for the saved and the unsaved. Paul says suffering in our lives has a positive purpose. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. When we, through suffering, uh, know that our faith is genuine, we don't turn away from God, but we turn to God. That gives us hope that will not disappoint. It gives us assurance that we are truly God's children and therefore heirs to His promises. And how do we know God will keep His promises? That's the, the fifth benefit of justification, because we experience God's love. Romans 5.5, 5, this is what we looked at last week. Paul writes, We know that our hope is sure because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And how does the Holy Spirit pour His love into our hearts? Through the, through the truth revealed to our heads, to our minds. Truth of who God is, of who we are, of what God has done for us in spite of who we are. Truth that Paul communicates in verses 6 through 8 of Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us, for the weak, for the ungodly, for sinners. How? In the midst of our disobedience and rebellion and rejection of God, Christ died for us. This is the truth that the Holy Spirit reveals to our, to our heads and moves into our hearts where we experience the love of God. The love of God is poured out by the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And therefore we know that God will keep His promises, the promises He made to us. Our hope is sure and real and true. Now what I want us to notice about these uh, these first five benefits of justification is that they, we already have received them. We've been given them. In the past, they continue with us through the present, their present realities. We have it we have or at least have access to them right now. We have peace with God today. We stand in God's grace today. We can today rejoice in God's glory. We can today rejoice in our sufferings. We can experience God's love today. And I want us to see, what I want us to see is that Paul is saying that, that these current benefits, these current realities, are meant to give us hope. Hope in the future benefits that God has promised. The fact that we've received these benefits in the present, present means we can have assurance that the, our other promised benefits will be received in the future. And so, 
In Romans chapter 5, verse 9 through 10, Paul turns from the present benefits to the future, the final, at least for now, benefit for, that we are hoping for. And it's a big one. The sixth benefit of our justification is, is salvation. Jesus shall save us. In Romans 5, 9 through 10, we read, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Notice Paul says uh, twice, shall we be saved, or we shall be saved. Now you might be thinking, uh, Hold on just a minute. Haven't I already been saved in the past? Uh, wasn't this, what's this shall business? What's this future tense business? Wasn't I uh, saved on July 13, 1976 when I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Well, yes and no. It depends on what salvation you're talking about. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. Suppose someone were to come up to you and ask you, are you saved? Well, and suppose you are. Let's, let's talk about that. You would most likely say, yes, I am saved. I was saved 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 5 years ago, 1 year ago. And, and your answer would be correct if you're referring to the fact that that number of years ago, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, you are saved. But if you're thinking of the, uh, of the present... And what God accomplishes in you day to day, it would also be correct to say, yes, I'm being saved. Paul uses the, the present tense of the word saved in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, present continuous, it is the power of God. This means that God is currently working to save us from our sin. Now finally... You could answer in the future tense by saying, no, I'm not saved yet, but I know I will be. In this case, you'd be be seeking of the assurance of this future and complete and full salvation. That because of the work of Christ in the past to save you, and because that you're being saved currently by the work of God in your life, you can know that your promised future salvation is guaranteed. That on that final day, you will be transformed to be like Christ, and you will be saved. And that's what Paul means in Romans nine, excuse me, 5, 9, and 10, when he says, we shall be, future tense, saved. In fact, if you read through Paul's letters, that's usually when he talks about salvation, he's usually talking about this future salvation. And what he does in these two verses, 9 and 10, is present two arguments. He's, he's making his argument. He does this all the time. He's making an argument for the, our assurance in our future salvation. He really, 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 really wants you to be sure of your salvation, to have assurance of salvation. And so what he does in verses 9 and 10 is review and expand upon the benefits we've already received And then he says, because of what you're experiencing now, what you've already experienced and currently experienced, we can be assured of the future benefits, our future salvation. Specifically, 
we can be assured that we will be saved from one thing, we'll talk about that one thing, and we'll be saved to another thing, and we'll talk about that thing. Let's look with assurance at what we are saved from and to. First, Paul says, Jesus will save us from God's wrath. We don't like to talk about God's wrath. Paul doesn't have a problem with it, though. Let me remind you of what he's said already. We need to know uh, deep in our souls. I think this is a thing we miss because we like to set aside, brush over, not confront or conflict. We don't like to face sin. We need to know deep in our souls that God hates sin. And therefore, his holy, righteous anger, fury, it's called, against sin is real. Wrath against sin is real. It's partially seen now. We partially see it in our world now. Just a, a lot of it, just of natural consequences of our sin comes disaster. But in the future, it will come fully. Terrible and eternal punishment awaits unrighteous sinners. Remember Paul wrote Romans 1.18. He got this in right in chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All who are unrighteous, ungodly, the unjustified, will receive the wrath of God. God's wrath is being revealed now, but one day it will come in full force. In Romans 2.5, Paul makes this clear. He says, he writes this, this warning to the unrighteous. He says, because of your hard and impudent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. The wrath of God is being stored up for those who hard-heartedly continue in their sin. Refuse to repent. Refuse to turn to Him. They will on the day of wrath, on judgment day, receive the full wrath they've earned in this life. The Scripture teaches that they will face the wrath of God throughout all eternity. In that other place we don't like to talk about, hell. But praise the Lord, this is not what awaits the justified, the believer. Romans 5.9 begins... Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood. This is what Paul has already made clear in Romans. That we've been justified, counted righteous by the blood of Christ. That Christ died for the weak and the ungodly and for sinners. That Christ shed His blood as a a sacrificial substitute. So that those who believe, those who put their faith in Him alone, will be counted credited, imputed, given righteousness. Christ took on our sin and we take on His righteousness so that we would no longer be unrighteous in the sight of God. And because of that, we can know that in the future, much more, he says, continuing in verse 9, shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Paul's saying that since Christ went so far, I mean, we can see it in the past. Christ went so far to to enter our world, to live a sinless life, and then to die, to bleed for the justification of the weak and ungodly, for sinners. Therefore, there should be no doubt of how much more we will be saved by Christ from the, the, the future wrath of God. So on that day of wrath, when uh, all is revealed, all about your life and my life, when it would be clear that because of our sin we deserve nothing but the wrath of God, Jesus will step forward. I don't know how this is going to work. 
I'm just speculating, but it's like he's going to step right in front of us. The wrath of God is going to deservedly would, would come upon us and Jesus will step in front of us. He'll rescue us from the wrath because on the cross, he paid for our sins and he, and he took that wrath upon himself. He took the wrath that we deserve and he took it upon himself. So first, in Romans 5.9, we see that praise the Lord Jesus will complete His work of salvation by saving us from the wrath of God. And you know what? That would be enough. Wouldn't that be enough? If after we die, and on that final day, if all the the death of Christ had accomplished was was that we would not have to experience the wrath of God, we we could rejoice in that. That we were, suppose that we were just annihilated. We were, poof, out of existence. No wrath, just out of existence. Or our soul would be put into some eternal uh, neutral storage location, a storage locker. But no wrath. Then we would have nothing to complain about. In fact, we would need to rejoice throughout all eternity because we had escaped the wrath of God through Jesus Christ. But what Christ did is far greater than us just escaping the wrath. Jesus not only saves us from God's wrath, He saves us to eternal relationship with Him. Like with verse 9, Paul begins verse 10 by expanding on uh, on some things he's already communicated. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, in verses 6-8, through we looked at last week, we saw that while we were... Weak and ungodly sinners, Christ died for us. And in verse 1 of this chapter, we saw that because of our justification, we have peace with God. That barrier between us and God has been broken down. We can achieve, we can have reconciliation. And so Paul expands on both truths. First, making it even clearer of who we were before our justification. Of just how bad it was. We were not only weak and ungodly, Uh, ungodly, irreverent, don't want God in our life. We were not only sinners disobeying God, we were also God's enemies. The word enemies means not only that we rejected God, not only that we wanted God away from us, but, but we're opposed to God. We wanted to destroy God. Like two opposing soldiers approaching one another on the battlefield, we consider it a matter of kill or be killed. We hate God. Why do you think so many people are so ready to accept that God had nothing to do with creation, with our creation, with any of creation? That there is an alternative explanation to a Creator God. Because we naturally want God out of our lives. We want Him out of the picture. We want to destroy Him. And we're overjoyed with any explanation, no matter how ridiculous, that allows us to deny the God we hate. We're set on destroying God's influence in our lives. We don't want God telling us what to do or how to do it. So first, before our justification, we were enemies of God. But why we were enemies? This is amazing. I mean, feel the, the, the love of God here. When we hated God, something amazing took place. Christ died for us. Christ's death provides us with peace and therefore reconciliation with God. To, to be reconciled means to, to have the, the grounds of hostility removed. 
and, and we're transformed into relationship, changing, uh, the, that relationship changes from one of enmity to one of friendship. When we put our faith in Christ, we are counted righteous by God. God transforms us from being His enemies to being His friends. More than that, He adopts us into His family. We then become heirs uh, to His promises. We have the privileges of sons and daughters. And so Paul reasons, if Christ died, that His enemies might be reconciled to God, then much, much more, much... Sorry, I added too many muches. Let me slow down here. Much more... Now that we are reconciled, it's a done deal, promise fulfilled, reconciled to God, shall we be saved by His life. Given that now we're reconciled to God, we are not enemies with God any longer, but children, much more shall we be saved by His life. There should be no doubt that God will save His children. So what does it mean that we will be saved by His life? I think, and, and I'm not alone here, that commentaries I read read here, uh, Paul is referring to the resurrection of Christ and his life after that. He's already stated all, of, all that Christ's death accomplished. And we tend to focus on the death of Christ, and as well we should. How through the death of Christ, we who are enemies are reconciled to God. He pays for our sins through his death. He takes our wrath when he dies. We are reconciled by Christ's death. We were saved from God's wrath, by the blood of Christ. But you know what? Life is much more powerful than death. So how much more shall we be saved by His life? How much more shall we be saved because death could not hold Christ? He didn't stay in the grave. How much more shall we be saved because Jesus lives? Jesus rose from the dead and lives today and will live throughout all eternity. And it's because of His resurrection unto life that we too will be saved from eternal death. And we too will be resurrected unto unto eternal life in the presence of God. Paul states it this way in in the next chapter, in in chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in in, death like, in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Like Christ, who was raised from the dead, those who are united with Him in death, those who put their faith, their trust in the death of Christ for their justification, we shall certainly be united, connected to Christ in His resurrection. We too will be resurrected unto eternal life. Jesus shall save us. Jesus shall save us from God's wrath. And He shall save us to eternal life in His presence forever. Amen? And don't forget Paul's purpose in all of this. He wants us to know. It's a now, there's a now purpose to this. I mean, it might be okay to just say, oh, that's good to know. I'm going to just relax now and wait for the end. But he has a purpose for now. He wants us to know, based on the benefits that we've already received in the past, that our future benefits are assured. He wants to give us assurance. There's no reason to be insecure about your future salvation. Look at it this way. Think about it. What's the the one main thing that causes us to doubt our relationship with God, to doubt our current relationship with God, and therefore to doubt whether we're saved or not. 
Answer, our sin. When we sin, we're often plagued with doubts. Am I really a Christian? Do I really, did I really believe? Did I do it right? I put my faith in Christ at age 13 because of the transformation I saw in my father and my mother. And I was justified. I was counted righteous by God. But for many years after that, I, I struggled with doubts. Doubts about my own personal salvation. Every time I committed some big sin, and, and there were many that I'm not going to list for you today. I've listed some, though. I'd wonder if, am I really saved? I, do saved people do this? I had no assurance, and, and so I, I, I probably asked Jesus into my heart, you know, hundreds of times. This was the pattern for many years of my Christian life. I, I, I'd be doing okay, everything would be fine, and then I'd commit some sin, or obvious sin, not that I wasn't sinning daily, but something obvious. This would cause me to experience shame and guilt, to think that God would no longer accept me, that I probably wasn't even a Christian. That if I died, uh, I'd probably go to hell. This would go on until the next time I went to church and, and I heard the gospel again and I'd believe again, I'd pray again, I'd receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior again. Better safe than sorry, I'd be thinking. But the problem was, the problem was this, was I was stuck in this cycle. This cycle that, that left me just sort of weak. I never really matured as a Christian because, because I was starting over again and again. It wasn't until someone explained to me and showed me from the Bible that I could have assurance. In fact, in fact it was uh, in college when I, the first time I ever was in a, in a discipleship group. Uh, the first time we, I got, a, you know, some of us are in doing discipleship now through our small groups. For me, this first time I went through something like that was in college and someone gave me a a little book that was going to go through, and chapter one of that book was titled Assurance of Salvation. I think it comes down, I think it's in our book too. We'll get to it. But it was from that point, that was sort of like a door, a key opening uh, in my life to understanding, oh, I can have assurance of salvation. I began to grow in my relationship with God. And that's what Paul is doing here in Romans 5. He's giving us this assurance. He's saying, think about it. I mean, really, think about it. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, if sin was not an issue, not that sin wasn't an issue, but if Christ took care of our sin then, when we were first reconciled to God, before we were in relationship with God, again, weak, ungodly, unrighteous, uh, sinners, enemies, how can it still become an issue? How can our sin be an issue after we've been reconciled, once we are His sons and daughters? If our past sin of being God's enemy and all that goes with it could not prevent our reconciliation, how can our current sins prevent us from staying reconciled? If God's grace covers the sins of His enemies, how much more does it cover the sins of His children? Now that's not to say pause here. That's not to say that God doesn't care about our sin, that it doesn't matter if we sin. It's not to say that once you're justified, once you're a child of God, that you, should, you can do whatever you want, that you can continue in sin. 
that you're to go on sinning, Paul will deal with that very thing in chapter 6 because some of the stuff he says in chapter 5 makes it sound that way. And so I don't, uh, you know, if we were just reading the whole book, I could just wait till 6, but that's going to be a few weeks. So I'm just telling you, don't go sin. Paul's going to deal with that when we get to chapter 6. So that's not what it's saying. But it is to say that our sin does not revoke our salvation. Praise God. Right? That for those who've been truly justified, who truly put their faith in Jesus Christ, being saved from God's wrath and being saved to eternal relationship with Him are guaranteed. And so I would encourage you, specifically, if your sin causes you to doubt your salvation, to think over these truths, to meditate on all the benefits you've received, to know that your salvation is assured. Not, to, not so that you can continue in sin, not so you can continue in the cycle of sin, but so that you can move forward, so that you can break out of that cycle with confidence, yes, confessing and repenting the sins that you do commit, but continually growing in your relationship with God. And so that takes us to Romans chapter 5, verse 11. In verses 1 through 10, Paul has detailed these benefits of our justification. And, and he's given us assurance of our future salvation. He says, because of these benefits you've received now, be assured that this future benefit wrapped up in this word of salvation will be yours as well. The question then is, how, how should that affect our lives? How do those who've been justified by faith, whose future eternal salvation is assured, how do we live now? And so that's, I'm, I'm, I'm titling this, it's in your notes, Responding to Our Benefits. That's what I think Paul is telling us to do in verse 11. He says, more than that, he begins verse 11, more than that, more than anything else that, that I've said up to this point, at least in chapter 5, more than all the benefits we've received for our justification, more than even our, our future salvation, more than, than anything More than all of that, this is how we're to live in light of the fact that we've been justified by the blood of Christ. We are also, he says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the third time in in these uh, 11 verses that Paul uses this word rejoice. In verse 2 he said, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And in verse 3 he said, rejoice in our suffering, same word. If you remember this word rejoice means, means to boast. It's translated to boast in other places, to exult, you know, to just, mm, to glory in might be a, a way. To rejoice in God. Put simply, it means to, to positively uh, make a big deal, call attention to God. To both inwardly in the depths of your soul and, and outwardly through, through your mouth to rejoice in God. This is the response we're to have regarding our justification and all its past and present and future benefits. Those benefits Paul summarizes with that word reconciliation. This is at the heart of, of our benefits. The fact that we've been reconciled to God, that we are His sons and daughters, our relationship has changed. We're no longer His enemies. We're His family. This is why we'll be saved from God's wrath. This is why we'll be saved to His eternal presence. 
And this was all accomplished, not by anything we could have done. I mean, we were weak, ungodly sinners, enemies of God. We could do nothing. It was all done for us by Jesus Christ. We rejoice. We make a big deal about God through making a big deal about what He's done for us through Jesus Christ. We rejoice in God through Jesus Christ. This is our response to the benefits we've received. And this is the greatest, and this is the most important thing we can do with our lives. This is the purpose for which you and I were created. This is the purpose for which God saved us. In Isaiah 43, 6-7, God says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now in one sense, everyone, whether they know it, whether they want it or not, uh, was created for God's glory. Everyone in one way or another, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Maybe in regret that they didn't come to Him. Maybe in joy because they did. And for those that did, you've been reconciled to God. If you're a son or a daughter of God, if you've called upon His name and been saved, then then you have been specially, I believe, created to the purposefully use your life for His glory. You were specially created not, not to find your your personal purpose in life, not to climb the highest mountain, not to reach for the farthest star, not to leave a great legacy so people will talk about you after you're gone. You were created to make a big deal about who God is, to rejoice in, to glorify Him above all else. As the Westminster Shorter Shorter Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy, or I would say even to rejoice in Him forever. And so the final question for us today is, do we do that? Do we rejoice in God now? Do we make a big deal about who God is and what God has done for us? Do we make a big deal about our past and our present and our future salvation, all of which we receive not because of ourselves, but because of Jesus Christ? Do we rejoice in the fact that we've been reconciled to God for all eternity? Do we rejoice in in God who through His Son, Jesus Christ, saves us from hell and saves us to heaven? Is this what we are known for? Is this what people say about us? Those bridges people sure, sure know how to make a big deal about God. Their God must be huge. Ray Steadman, commenting on Romans chapter 5, said, the, the one clear mark of a true Christian is that he always rejoices in God. But do we rejoice in God? I must admit that, I, I, and I think it's true for many of us, that we often do not rejoice in God. Not at least as we should. Why is that? I, I think it boils down to the fact that we fill our lives with and we rejoice in so many other things. Sometimes those things are obviously wrong and sinful. And maybe we're not rejoicing in them, but we're, we're filling our time with them and we need to repent of that. Sometimes those things are just sort of neutral. They're just out there. They aren't condemned in Scripture. They're not necessarily sinful. They just fill our time. And sometimes those, those things are even good things, even positive things. And I think our greatest problem is that we fill our lives with, and, and we 
rejoice in the things, these things instead of rejoicing in God. We have a limited capacity to rejoice. There are only so many hours in a day. And I think in the church, we've, we've sort of made this art form out of filling our lives and rejoicing in, in non-sinful things other than God. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we can't rejoice in, in good things, in the good things of this life, that we can't rejoice in our family and our friends and our fellowship and our hobbies. can't rejoice that God's given us a, a good job. You can't rejoice in the beauty of His creation. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we can't fill our lives with those things. So that we spend so much of our time and effort rejoicing in them, all, all the while committing what, what I would call the greatest sin of all, ignoring God's glory, ignoring rejoicing in Him. Because if, if we were created, if our purpose is to rejoice in and glorify God, then it's certainly a great sin to not do that. To not rejoice, to not make a big deal about who God is and what He's done for you. So I just challenge you, as I challenge myself this morning, to examine uh, what you're filling your life with. What are you rejoicing in? What what do people say about you? To ask yourself, what what would my family and my my friends, those who know me, my co-workers say if asked, what does that guy, what what does he, what does she love? What does they love to do? To ask yourself, what what do I really love? And if the answer isn't God, then you need to confess your sin of not rejoicing in Him, of not making Him the the priority of your life, of not filling your time with Him. You need to, to make time each day. This is practical. This is part of our discipleship. I I can't stress this enough, to make time each day, I would say preferably in the morning. Spend time in God's Word. Spend time in prayer, meditation, reflecting on who He is. Reflecting on what He's done for you. Rejoicing in the great benefits that He's provided for you. So that then throughout the day, all this other stuff could have been folded in and into your rejoicing in God. So, So no matter what natural or even good things you're about, That in your own heart, and then with your mouth, you're rejoicing in God. You're making a big deal about who God is. You're making a big deal about what He's done for you, His former enemy. You're making a big deal of the God who gives you, most assuredly, eternal salvation. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, I would pray for us. I would pray, Lord, that You would give us, uh, through the truth in Your Word, through the prompting of the Spirit, through just the reality of, of what you've shown us historically in Christ, that you would give us assurance of our salvation, Lord. That for those who have trusted in you, we would know that at the end of our lives, we'll, we'll face you and we'll be saved from the wrath we deserve, Lord, and we'll be saved to relationship with you. Lord. Help us to know that And then out of that, Lord, I pray it would flow just great rejoicing. Rejoicing in you. Rejoicing in what you've done. Telling people of who you are. Glorifying and honoring your name in every day of our life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.